Mr. Chief Justice, please the court. If you interview 16 people, you get 16 different uh, versions of a story, and it gets raised a broader conceptual issue of how law is designed to enforce one narrative. Um, and um, what does it mean to give the state the power to enforce one narrative as truth? This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. This week, we're going to talk about our most recent investigative report, Mother and Son, The Law in the News, and we're going to talk about what we're working on behind the scenes. For those of you who are new to In Studio, let me introduce you to our team. Brittany Batorf is an attorney with the Mayor Law Group and is chair of Life of the Law's advisory board. Asagi Obasagi is author and scholar at UC Berkeley and is a member of our advisory board. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Asagi. And Kirsten Cheswitz Heidel is our post production editor and our cultural scientist. Hey, Nancy. Hey. <laughs> I hope you've all had a chance to listen to our most recent investigative report, Mother and Son. It's the story of a man named Greg Eskridge and his relationship to his mother, Pat Eskridge. So um, let's do a little bit of summary about that piece. Um, it all began when. I was inside San Quentin State Prison, and I was talking to Greg about um, our upcoming uh, meeting of the Society of Professional Journalists. There are 40 members who are journalists inside the prison working as inmate journalists, and they meet every Sunday. And Greg said, well, I'm going to miss the next meeting because my mom is coming for a visit. And I said, well, how long have you been in prison? And he said, 21 years. And I kind of just hit me what it must be like to be a mother of a son in prison. And I had no idea. I mean, to spend 21 years visiting your son. And I said, well, when did you come to prison? He said when he was 19. He, he was convicted when he was 19. And that's a whole lifetime right there. I mean, he's 40 now, 41. He's, you know, living behind the walls. He was given a 65 years to life sentence plus two life terms. So, you know, what does that mean to have not just be in prison, but but to really have very little chance of ever getting out and to be that mother? So I asked if we could talk to his mother and about that experience. And we began a conversation on the phone talking to Patricia Eskridge. And it was in that first conversation that um, she said, you know, you know, she introduced herself and explained that, you know, a little bit about Greg's childhood, that his father had died when he was three. But then she also said that he had a really great relationship with his stepfather. And and I thought, oh, that's that's wonderful. Um, but immediately when we hung up, Greg called uh, from inside the prison. And I said, hey, that's great that you had a great relationship with your stepfather. And that's when things took a turn. Uh, in in this conversation, uh, because Greg described um, that he had a pretty horrible relationship with his stepfather because his stepfather uh, abused him, um, and he described how he beat him with this board called Mr. Green, and how that led to um, his not trusting people in his life. He ran away from home was put into foster care, um, and then after getting out of foster care, he, uh, you know, returned home briefly to live with his mother, 
Um, and it kind of led to this, you know, this anger that he had inside of himself uh, that he said he made a, 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 you know, kind of a bargain with himself that if he ever got out in the world, he would never let another person touch him, hit him. Um, and so that's, you know, the story, you know, evolves to the point where we're back and forth talking to the mother and son. And um, he describes the de- the night. They both describe the night that he commits uh, what he's convicted of, which is murder, assault with a deadly weapon and um, attempted murder. And that's what he's con- that's what he's convicted of and sent to prison. And then we go into the visiting experience. So I you know, what did you all think of this story? I thought it was a powerful story, and I'll, I'll start by talking about the way the story was told. Um, so when I first listened to the initial, you know, I guess say four to five minutes, I was a bit disoriented because there's not a strong narrator to lead the story, right? So it's just the voices of Greg and, and Pat going back, back and forth telling a story. And as the, you know, as the initial few minutes went on, I was a little just kind of thinking to myself, well, what's going on here? I need someone to hold my hand a little bit to tell me what this story is about. And then you get further into the story and you realize that this was, um, you know, not to pat Life and Law on the back too much, but it was a masterful production of putting together these two separate interviews in a way that they were in conversation with one another um, in a manner that told a beautiful story about how two people experienced or shall we say how two people's lives kind of changed and evolved. Um, in response to this, you know, one night where Greg committed these acts and um, hearing kind of the, the, these two people also tell the context to run up in terms of, you know, the abuse that Greg suffered and having his mother talk about that, that, that experience at the same time and, and having that story told without a, you know, uh, objective third party being a lead narrator, I thought was a, was a really powerful way of showing how law shapes people's lives. Um, not to the substance of the story, I, you know, it's a it's a heartbreaking but unfortunately common story. I think where we it's an opportunity to see how you know when p- people commit hor- horrific acts, it's often as a result of a series of incidents that precede that happen happen in our lives that often you know shape the decisions they make at a particular moment. And I think it leads us to you know think hard and long about not thinking about those who commit certain crimes as quote unquote bad individuals, but rather thinking about the social conditions and the and the life situations that put people in a position to make bad decisions um, at particular moments. And I think that should lead us to think about what it means for a criminal justice system to deal with these acts, but also think about the, what's the long term purpose of incarceration and whether or not the current situation that we have is truly moving towards rehabilitation. Mm. Well, yeah. And Kirsten, what do you think? Uh I thought that it was a pretty powerful story. I met Greg when we went in for the uh, live law in San Quentin. And I I mean, he's a very nice man. He's lovely. <laughs> um, and so like just listening to his story, I thought was really interesting. And in the way that, like Osagi said, like the way that two people can experience the same events so differently. And... I think it was also really interesting for me because, like, I also was raised by a single mother and I was like, all right, well, oh, how the things can change. (laughs) But, yeah, I thought that I just thought it was really nice. I thought it was a nice story. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Did Greg speak at the Live Law San Quentin event? No, he didn't speak, but he was at the. So we had a 
Um, we did, a, in fact, you can listen to it if you haven't heard uh, live at San Quentin. It's on our website, um, and it was stories told by inmates inside San Quentin about the law in their lives, and they're pretty compelling. Um, so take a chance, go to our archive, and you can find it. Um, yeah. Well, I probably met him. I just maybe don't remember his name because I met many of the... He's very tall. Okay. Um, I, I, too, found it a very compelling and moving story. And um, I was also struck by how differently these two people perceived the same sets of facts and experiences in their life. And I... I find that a lot. Um, I do a lot of investigations as an attorney, and I, you know, I'll talk to people about one incident. I'll talk to sixteen people sometimes, and it's as if we're talking about sixteen different incidents, but we're talking about one three-hour incident that happened on the same night. Um, and so it's just interesting that for for these two people, they had such a different experience for the whole life. It seems like you know the mother's story of her son was so contrast from what Greg's story of his childhood was. And and I felt also just really, you know, I felt for them because, you know, I, I think the, the mother, she, she didn't really know what her son had experienced and, and maybe, you know, what, what could have changed had he had been able to articulate to her what, what he had been experiencing when he was, you know, with his stepfather, you know, how that trauma was affecting his life and, and all of this. And so it's just, it's a tragedy. I think the whole story is a tragedy in so many levels, not the least of which is the current and ongoing tra- tragedy of the fact that he's still in jail 21 years later after he's, you know, committed a crime when he was 19 and going back to Asagi's point of what is the long-term goal of incarceration and why are these people incarcerated for so long when they commit these crimes Mm -hmm. at their peak of hormonal teenage imbalance um you know what what is the sociological justification for that and why does a person like greg go away get sentenced to 65 years in life plus two life sentences which just seems extraordinarily harsh and um just inconceivable for the fact that he's not a sociopath versus, you know, some other person who might be white, might come from a middle, upper class background, kind of maybe doesn't engage in such egregious behavior, but does violate the law in many sundry ways and nothing happens to them. And they still get into college and go on to lead, um, you know, successful lives. So I think that's a bigger context of the tragedy. Yeah. And it, it also gets raises some interesting questions about our legal system. So, for example, had Greg committed these these uh, acts 16 months prior, you know, there would have been a different legal response to what would, what would have been thought of the appropriate way to deal with this with this issue. And so the idea that, you know, being 18 years is a moment of maturity where people are ultimately held responsible to the highest degree. Well, you know, I think that m- there's something to that. But at the same time, as you're suggesting, some people develop a little bit slower, some people a little bit faster. And law has this kind of very strict cutoff point. And it's worth thinking about, well, is that always appropriate? And that ties into your previous point, Brittany, which is, you know, and I'm glad you raised the point about the investigations you do, where if you interview 16 people, you get 16 different uh, versions of a story. And it just raises the broader conceptual issue of how law is designed to enforce one narrative. Um, 
And um, what does it mean to give the state the power to enforce one narrative as truth when oftentimes the truth is much more complicated? And this is not to necessarily buy into some type of alternative facts post, post-truth world, but rather is to say that life is complex. And oftentimes that can, there, it's very difficult to bring that complexity before the law as a way to come to some type of appropriate, humane um, way to deal with antisocial behavior. And um, part of what you're suggesting, Brady, is that you know, if we can think of creative ways to somehow bring the complexity of life before legal decision makers, then maybe that can lead to some type of better understanding of what role the criminal justice system to play in, in our lives in terms of helping people both be held accountable for their acts, but also moving towards a, a system where there's some way to reintegrate them into society. You know, one thing that this story brought up for me was, well, actually two things. Um, one was, okay, that in all 50 states, it's legal to use corporal punishment on your child. And the law basically says that um, you are not forbidden by law to use corporal punishment on your child as long as the form of punishment is reasonable and does not cause injury. But the question is, when who who's there to document the injury if it's if if it's not reported, and who's going to report it? So when you brought up, well, actually, you brought up Brittany the. Um, the fact that his mother didn't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to make Pat the bad person here, but Greg does say in the story that he, you know, she was there. She saw, she knew, she was asking the stepfather to, to inflict this punishment on Greg as a nine-year-old. Um, and, and so, I'm, you know, when we talk about the law and the role of the law in our society, well, here's a child of nine and his mother has the legal authority to use corporal punishment that is reasonable. Um, and the stepfather is given that authority by the mother. If the stepfather hadn't been given that authority, then maybe there could be some action, I assume. But the mother was giving the stepfather um, in loco parentis. So that means she said, do it. And and here's this nine-year-old, 10-year-old child who's being beaten with a paddle called Mr. Green that's made out of a two-by-four, which is really a horrifying moment in the story when he describes how he watched his stepfather create this paddle um, and then use it on him. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, are we, you know, where does the law come in for a child who's experiencing this when the law says you can beat your child, you can use corporal punishment, you can spank your child? And I wanted to kind of bring this back to the team and say, you know, what has been your experience with spanking? Um, Like, have you known people? Have you been spanked? Did you ever have an experience where you, you know, felt that had gone too far? And what was your ability to reach out or get help or stop it as a child? And, you know, I'll start by saying I was spanked a lot and I did not have anyone to turn to. I, you know, it was seen as a form of, you know, uh, creating me as a good person uh, to create, you know, to discipline me. Um, And I think it was really, you know, as a child, I really didn't know where to turn. And I think as a child, you don't know the law. And for the most part, parents don't know the law, but they assume uh, that as a parent, they have the right. So, 
I'm just wondering, what role do we see the child, in, in this case, Greg had as a child, to stop that abuse so that he didn't turn into a person who didn't trust and then creates, you know, there's a direct correlation in the story between him feeling anger uh, and mistrust and, you know, potentially being in that environment where the, the crime happens. So I'm just asking, what was, what do you think about spanking, whether you experienced it or whether, you know, what do you think about it in general? Well, Nancy, let me clarify first. I, I, I understood that the mother had asked the stepfather to inflict this punishment on Greg, but I just meant if she had known what that was doing to him, if she better understood the trauma that he was enduring, as well as, of course, the consequences, which is impossible for her to know in, in that moment. But that brings me to my point. And I raised this on the, um, I can't remember the name of the episode, but the one about the shaken baby syndrome. Shaken. Shaken. Um, I raised that point there about, um, you know, do we want to spend our money as a society incarcerating people for shaking their babies, or do, or would it be better spent trying to educate people how to take care of infants and the dangers of shaking a baby, and then teaching them ways to cope with um, infants who mm. are inconsolable? I think we can fast forward to the age nine or thirteen or even nineteen. Do we give parents any type of resource to dealing with? Uh, you know, perhaps a kid who's misbehaving in class with his, at home. No, we don't. We expect them to know how to do it. And then when they maybe falter and the kid acts up, acts out, engages in crime, we send them away to prison. So to, to me, I mean, so I again ask, well, how do we want to spend our resources as a society? Do we want to just lock these kids up? When their parents maybe don't have the tools and resources to raise them in a environmentally and emotionally supportive way, or, or do we want to try to to help reach out to to families and give them the resources to to better parent? And I mean, kids do act out. Kids can be challenging. And what do most parents rely on in meeting those challenges? What their parents did. And this goes back to Heroin Town when one of the nurses nurses was talking about how do you cure addiction? And she said, you'd have to give me two generations. I mean, I think it's the exact same thing. You'd have to give two, three generations to kind of solve this problem. But one of the ways to, to help, I think, is to get your arms around more about giving families and parents, especially single mothers, resources and tools for helping raise their children, helping with discipline issues. I mean, that's why she reached out to her presumably to to the stepfather. She just didn't know how to how to handle the, you know, nine year old who's probably just being, you know, nine. Um, and so she resorted to what what she knew in her experience of the way to um, discipline a child. So did you never experience spanking? I did. I mean, not, nothing like this, but I did grow up in the South. And, you know, that is a common form of uh, discipline. And wasn't so bad. It was mostly my mom. It was never a male, um, but I, you know, in my family, some there have been more um, significant 
approaches of corporal punishment, but I don't feel at liberty to talk about them because my family members listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on. And, and, uh, you know, so, you know. So what do you think now that you're you're the next generation? Mm -hmm. How do you, I mean, you experienced corporal punishment as a child. So how do you, do you believe in corporal punishment today? Absolutely not, Nancy. But I have the time and luxury and resources to read a stack full of parenting books, as well as you know, the counselor at my son's school. And, you know, if if I needed to, I could hire somebody to help me out with my kid. That You know, I have so many more advantages that people in situations where they don't have those kind of access or financial resources just don't. And so I don't, I don't think that, and you know who's paying the price is those children who get thrown in jail as a result. So basically the society's playing the, paying the cost because not only do we have children who are, being raised in that kind of an environment where they are frustrated, angry, they commit a crime, the criminal justice system steps in, they end up doing potentially time in an incarcerated environment at a cost Forever. of sixty to $100,000 per <laughs> right. person a year, tax dollars. So like you said, we're going to spend the money. How are we going to spend it? Where are we going to? Right. Yeah. Books are a lot cheaper than housing <laughs> prisoners for decades. Zagi? <laughs> I think there's a couple of things. Uh, so first, I think there's an important distinction to be made between corporal punishment and assault. And I think the law acknowledges that distinction um, in terms of what is seen as reasonable. You know, I'm not someone who advocates corporal punishment, but, you know, it seems like what Greg experienced was more on the assault line of things where he just talks about, you know, receiving beating so badly he couldn't go to sleep on his backside and had to lay on his stomach. You know, that's that I think from the legal perspective, that probably goes beyond what the law considers uh corporal punishment and more towards a form of assault that uh, is goes beyond any type of you know parental child boundary or 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 stepfather child boundary and is something that would be seen as troublesome and problematic um, regardless of the individual enacting it on on the child um, so that's one thing and then I think another way to to think about this or another part of the conversation is how for some communities, corporal punishment is a deeply cultural, if not religious, um, part of how they think about child rearing. Um, so this came up a couple of years ago when the uh, football player Adrian Peterson was in legal trouble because he engaged in a form of corpor- corporal punishment with his son that, you know, by, you know, if you look at the pictures, you know, went beyond the, the what the law considers reasonable corporal punishment in version to the area of assault. I believe he he used uh, what's called a switch to to um, to um, spank or, or beat his child and left severe marks on his legs and and, and backside. Um and as a result of that conversation, there was, you know, this kind of backlash from many people uh, about how within the African, African-American community, uh, spanking or corporal punishment was an important form of discipline because the idea was that if the parents did not engage in a form of physical response to antisocial behavior, then the police will. And at least if the parents do it, the child is more likely to survive the incident as opposed to facing the physical brutality that comes with um, um, policing. And so this was a, a, a very strong commentary. You know, in this case, the conversation was around the idea that, that particularly for young black men, um, the stakes are too high to engage in some type of of, of softer verbal kind of um, correction of children. That you know, given these high stakes, that the, the that the response from parents had to be forceful and immediate 
to make sure that, um, in particular, young black men aren't put in a position, again, where um, their lives can be taken by some type of state authority who sees their antisocial behavior as a particular threat to the community. Um, so this is all to say that there's a certain level of complexity to the conversation with regards to how and why corporal punishment is seen as an appropriate response in certain communities. And, um, and that's just to say that that may um, uh, shape the way we think about, you know, the kind of intergenerational effects in terms of how and why generation after generation, certain communities continue to buy into corporal punishment as a legitimate uh, form of of addressing um, um, bad behavior in children. And, and I think Brittany raises a really important point to say that um, we have to acknowledge the ability to engage in kind of long-term um, kind of uh, long-term engagement with children to correct antisocial behavior requires a ton of resources. And right now, as a society, we rely upon individuals to provide those own resources to do that, to parent in a particular way. But, you know, there's a very strong argument to suggest that, well, there's there's a certain amount of cost savings, as Brittany aptly pointed out, in society providing greater um, um, instruction, particularly for, for young parents, and greater resources so that they can... Um, uh, have the same opportunity to uh, develop alternative mechanisms of, of parenting that in the long run will you know, be, a, a, I think, a, not only a, a savings for society, but also a better ways to raise children. And were you spanked? Uh, no, no. Never? I, uh, no. But he, no. he was never given coffee either. <laughs> so that could it's be just a perfect form of, of, of punishment. No. So how did your parents discipline you? What did they do? You know, I was a pretty boring kid. I... <laughs> you saved it up for when you were an adult. Did you have siblings? I did. I know. I'm an older sister. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I you know I, I grew up in the suburbs of Ohio and had a pretty idyllic childhood and um, had no real reason to misbehave. My my family was very supportive and had lots of resources and um, and you know I read a lot of books growing up and you know <laughs> I didn't really find myself in much trouble. Um, but that being said, I also grew up in Southern Ohio where you know spanking was common and you know and. Um, you know, it's a particularly that part of, of of the Midwest. You know, these types of corporal punishments, I believe, at the time, was even uh, institutionalized in some of the schools. So it wasn't uncommon to to see that happen. But you know, in in my household growing up, I guess it never was really an issue. You're a lucky man, <laughs> Kirsten. Uh, well, I was spanked a lot. I was a very strong-willed child, and I think that it was weird not weird, interesting for me growing up because it was just me and my mom and we were pretty poor, but I got scholarships to all these fancy schools. So I was like, I knew that I was the only person getting spanked in all of these schools because like everyone else would just be like, why would you ever get spanked? You get like sent to your room. And I was like, but when you do something bad, you get spanked where are we missing the cue here? And so, like, I don't know that I ever, like, I thought that it was weirder that people didn't get spanked than that I got spanked, where I was just like, this is what happens. This is what you do. Okay. It it was just interesting for me listening to the story, how people can respond so differently to things like getting spanked. Greg had a, I mean, obviously he was getting 
like actually beaten and I was never getting actually beaten but he had a very strong visceral response to it and for me it was just always like the what happens you just don't be a pain in the butt and I was always a pain in the butt I was <laughs> so. gonna say was it deterrent to you? <laughs> no not at all mm-hmm. I was just like I was worse right. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm kind of curious. Soggy never spanked Brittany. The three of us, the three women, spanked. <laughs> um, does the law do enough to protect children? I mean, well, it, I like mean, like with Soggy, you said, like it wasn't just you know corporal punishment or spanking. It was assault, and you know, and and so, but there's no you know the law can be in I mean in in communities where it is accepted um the you know the child is like okay I've got three marks or no marks um where's where does the law draw the line and is the line clear enough and is there an opportunity for children who are experiencing it to move that generational change up you know while they're living it you know, I'll use a pop culture reference here. So, um, you know, in Mad Men, there was an episode where um, Don Draper is the main character. Um, I hope I'm rem- rem- remembering this correctly. Um, but um, his kids were acting up and, and um, his wife, Betty, wanted him to engage in some form of corporal punishment. And Don refused in large part because he grew up in a household um, where um, he was beaten severely and for him the response to being um, punished with corporal his his response to receiving corporal punishment as a child informed his parenting in a manner that he never wanted to uh, subject that to his own children and I, I'd imagine though even though this was you know a a an AMC drama from <laughs> dated in the 60s I can imagine that some people in real life also have a similar response where they had such a horrible experience with spanking as a child that they kind of in, intuitively um uh, built in a sensibility to them that they never want their own children to experience that. And on the other hand, as we're as we've been talking about, there are some people whose um, childhood experiences is socialize them socialize them into thinking that this type of punishment is just normal in the way you raise children. So, you know, there are a lot of variables going on in terms of how people respond to those particular experiences. I was also going to make a pop culture reference. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's like this comic that I read named Watchmen. And in it, there's a line that says, who watches the Watchmen? And it's sort of like that. Like, if no one's reporting anything, who's going to say anything? Like, Mm -hmm. there's no one who's just going to stare at parents all day and be like, what are you doing? Are you parenting right? And so, like, if no one says anything and if no one's going to say anything, then it just is going to be until someone stops it. You know, if I ever had children, which... God forbid, but should I? You would make a wonderful I, I would. I'm so good with them. Um, I I don't think I would ever, like, spank my kids, but, like, you know, so I would be the person to stop that in my family, but until that happens, like, mm. who's going to ever do that? No one. Mm. It just is what it is. I think there's also a tendency to view this type of violence within the home as a private matter. And not something for 
for public eyes. You know, historically, for example, domestic violence um, was seen as a private matter and not something that the law or other people should be engaged in. And now we're, hope, we're, we're thankfully at a point in society where we realize that domestic violence between uh, husbands and wives, for example, um, is something that is a public matter and something that should be some, something that we all care about and report on and make sure that people don't experience. And we're not quite there with domestic violence in terms of parents and children. I think we're mm-hmm. still at a point where that is still seen as somewhat of a quasi-private matter with regards to how parents decide to raise their children. And while I think we're we're kind of becoming more aware of the fact that there is this line between corporal punishment and assault, and that assault should be something that we, we are aware of, I think there is still a level of tolerance of it um, that, you know, we as a society probably should rethink and begin to be increasingly skeptical of of corporal punishment as a parenting tool, um, precisely for the reason that it's not simply a private matter in terms of parenting, but is a deeply public matter that we should all care about and engage in, and does, you know, as Brittany was saying earlier, has, has ramifications for um, <clears throat> who our future citizens will be when they grow up. And Nancy, the law does have imposed certain reporting requirements for particular professionals such as teachers and doctors and nurses that when they um, have any reason to suspect abuse in a home of a child, they have to make a report. And sometimes, though, what happens is, you know, it's a really obviously well-intentioned law, but what, what will happen is that maybe some communities, those professionals might not be as aware of the reporting requirements or maybe, you know, because of like Osagi was talking about, it's it's just accepted corporal punishment that they don't know what's abuse and what's just, you know, parent taking care of the child at home. A report might be made and then child services gets called into and may, you know, take the child out of the home when maybe there wasn't abuse. And so there's like there's whole other Pandora box that can happen that you know, reveals other kind of systemic societal problems involving kind of race and um, poverty. So, you know, just having that law doesn't necessarily fix the problem. Right. And I think that's a fantastic point in terms of um, the complexity of this issue and how, um, you know, some scholars have talked about how these laws are used to impose greater forms of surveillance on poor communities mm-hmm. in particular and poor communities of color. Um, whereas the same level of surveillance is not given to wealthy family, families uh, who often engage in the same type of behavior. So, you know, there is, um, you know, there, there's a lot of levels to this conversation. Yeah, I, I have become a mother and my daughter is now a mother. And I think that makes you a grandmother. It does. It does. <laughs> I'm Grandma Nancy. You know. And, you know, the, the really beautiful thing is um, I made a, I made a, pledge to myself um, when I became a mother that I would never spank my child. And I never did. You know, I, I think that that has created a really, you know, she is quite, quite wonderful and successful. She's an attorney and she's an executive director and she is now a wonderful mother who never spanks her children. And, um, and I think that you can do it in a generation. You know, and, and sometimes it's just becoming aware that, oh, if you don't, your children can grow up to be successful, like Asagi and Brittany, who was spanked but has become very successful. Oh, let me, let me clarify. My, successful my, at all. my spanking was very, very mild. If we're talking on a continuum of zero to ten, I'm like at a point one. Okay, okay so <laughs> if you're point one or you're 10.0, you can, you know, 
I think the message in this story, I think it was very, it was a beautifully told story of two people who came together and were willing to tell the truth about their lives. Greg and Pat Eskridge were willing to come and expose them, you know, their experience. And, you know, I, I did want to say that I talked to both Greg and Pat after the story aired, which was really interesting because while I had spoken to Greg and I had spoken to Pat, neither had heard the other's side of the story until the story aired. So, you know, Pat called me the day the story was published and she was crying. And she said, you know, I told the truth. I'm glad I told it. Um, and I hope it helps someone else learn from my experience. And then I went into San Quentin and I played it for Greg Eskridge in the prison. And he listened without moving for, what, 38 minutes, I think the piece airs. And then he turned around and said, she told the truth. I didn't know. And he was, he's like, now people know what my experience was. And hopefully it will help someone. So I think they both feel that by telling their story, um, hopefully it'll help someone else learn of, of the cost uh, to one person and to, you know, the cost to their relationship. But I think now they feel that they have begun this conversation um, Asagi, it's up for grabs. What do you have? Well, so uh, one of the big stories this week came uh, with United Airlines. So Uh-oh. there was a viral video that went around with regards to a, a passenger, I believe, were flying from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky, and it was uh, it was initially reported as the plane being overbooked, but it was not overbooked. And what happened was United had, I believe, four of their employees who needed to get to Louisville, so they wanted to bump four passengers. And they went through a series of incentives, uh, monetary incentives, I I believe got up to $800 to try to encourage people to voluntarily uh, take a later flight. Um, No one took the offer. Um, They then went through what they call it, I believe, a a random process where people or four people were randomly selected by the computer to uh, have uh, to to be placed on a different flight. Um, Three of those four people complied. One gentleman did not. He was a doctor who said he had to get back home because he had to work the next day. He um, uh, proceeded to board a plane. Um, he was then asked again to to leave. Uh, he said no. And at that point, um, uh, security was brought in and they forcibly removed him. And that forcible removal is what was caught on video and what caught, uh, caught, well, I should say, what caught um, many people's eye as being a, a, a violent removal. Um, and um, the video is shocking. Uh, I, I'd imagine many of our listeners uh, saw the video and the gentleman who uh, who was um, removed um, I believe he suffered uh, a concussion and a few other injuries. Bloody nose. Bloody nose. Teeth uh, knocked out. That's teeth, what, according to a recent Times article. Yeah, yeah. In the video, you, you can see the blood coming out of oh. his mouth. So it was, it was a pretty, you know, violent exchange. And uh, you know, many fascinating angles of this that we can't really cover in a few minutes. But for me, one of the more interesting ones was the initial response from United CEO. Um, um, and United at first did not necessarily acknowledge any wrongdoing, in part because from their perspective, whenever you buy a ticket, there's contractual language that allows them to, quote unquote, uh, in his words, reaccommodate passengers or, or, or bump them from flights or, or in, in a manner that justified in his eyes, um, at least in the initial response, United's behavior to bring in security. And it gets raises this question of uh, or this issue of. In what world? I mean, since then, the, the United CEO and United as a company has backtracked and, and fully apologized. But you know, it, it raises this question of uh, this broader question. Well, a couple questions to say. You know, one. You know, when we purchase an airline ticket, we expect that we're buying a seat and that 
we're entitled to that seat and that we're entitled to go from point A to point B. And so um, this whole kind of world of, of bumping people and overbooking is something that would not be uh, accept, acceptable in other forms of commerce, right? So if you were, you know, at a restaurant and you you, you, you had a reservation and the restaurant said, well, we're just going to bump you because someone else is coming in. You know, I think Jimmy Kimmel made this point on his show. Um, that would not be acceptable, right? Um, the idea that, you know, that you can just be forcibly or not forcibly, but you could be kind of bumped out of what you were otherwise entitled to. But somehow with airlines, we've have we've accept, we've accepted that um and, and if i want to change my flight i have to pay united like 300 dollar change fee right right and so it's not as if it's just like a pass i have to go on like muni or bart i you know i'm committed and i can't change my plans so why right. can why can they change them for me yeah so it gets raised the question of what is the nature of this contractual relationship and is it something that is that we should continue to allow to go forth unchecked and then secondly, I think another question is just kind of the, you know, even at the height of the, of the dispute, um, it, you would think that at some point there would have been an alternative way to try to resolve this matter. But instead, you know, security forces were brought in. And it speaks to the question of the, the um, just the growing size, or I should say the, the number, the growing number of issues that we as a society now see as police matters that require the use of force to resolve. And um, I'm not going to say it's a, it's a recent phenomenon. That's something that's been around for a long time. But at least we're at a moment now where we're seeing this uh, happening in increasingly troublesome ways. And um, I, it's something I think that, you know, we're thinking about. I, you know, I, I watched the video like right when it came out and it, it was kind of uh, disorienting watching the video um, because the way they this man had bought a ticket. He had gone through security. He had gone through the gate clearance. He had walked down the aisle. He was sitting in a seat. The plane was virtually ready to go. And and suddenly he's told he doesn't have that seat anymore. And and, and not only that, but he was he was treated violently as a result of his wanting to keep what he thought was a contractual agreement that he paid for his seat and he had a seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I read, um, I, I think it was in the New York Times or The Guardian, I don't remember where, that when they actually consider who they're going to bump, it, they don't just take a random list and go from, like, I don't know, a computer randomized list. They begin with people at the very, like, the, the least economically engaged. Mm-hmm. So if you bought a ticket on a third party... Uh, and I, you know, I frequently buy tickets on third party. So uh, that's where they start. And then from there they go up. So did you get a discounted ticket? Did you get a ticket um, that ha- that you didn't have a special seat assignment? Um, did you, are you not in business class? Are you not in first class? Are you so, not a premier member? Exactly. Right. So it, the, 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 the. I am clearly one of the first people that, mm-hmm. and and I hate to put this back in terms of me, but I know there's a lot of my friends who buy on third-party um, sites uh, their airline tickets on United. And so now I'm thinking, you know, uh, what would happen if I were going to uh, some someplace? You know, I actually had a conversation with a friend who said, well, you know, they needed to get those four people to Louisville because otherwise 300 people on the next flight would be held up. And that's 300 people that are being, you know, put out because this one man won't get off a flight. But, and but I, that's ridiculous, Nancy. Mm-hmm. They're an airline. They can reserve those seats. They've sold those seats. That's the airline's problem. Well, that's not or, Dr. 
Dr. Dow's right. problem. Or there are different ways to deal with this problem. So, for example, you know, it's one thing to uh, to bump somebody for a flight or try to remove them. It's another not thing to provide a series of incentives so people see that the extra hundred dollars or so, and I believe United got 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 up to eight hundred dollars, and no no one was taking right. And so, to me, that suggests that there should be additional incentives made. And I, I believe there are some federal limits in terms of the amount of of, of cash that can be provided, but there probably was a package of incentives that could have been offered to the people on the flight that at some point somebody would say, well, you know, X amount of dollars and X other things, that's enough for me to delay my trip for one day. And I think it's airlines have to become creative <laughs> about putting together a package that's attractive. It's interesting. I mean, you're raising a fascinating point about um this kind of stratification that we have in terms of our commercial engagement with airlines in terms of how the most vulnerable people are, or shall we say that the people who who buy from third parties or aren't miles members are, are, are seen as the most vulnerable and most disposable to airlines. Like mm-hmm. that's something that has to be deeply questioned as well, because there has to be something in the basic fabric of our commercial system to say that if I engage in a commer- commercial arrangement with a company, there are certain basic fundamental things that have to occur <laughs> um, and that those things should not be trumped simply because of my decision to purchase this from Orbitz as opposed to United.com. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for In Studio here at Life of the Law this week. But on May 6th, we're going to be hosting an audience engagement brunch in San Francisco for our listeners. All you have to do is email us at connect at lifeofthelaw.org and we'll give you more information. That's May 6th for Life of the Law's audience engagement brunch. If you have a comment or a question about the law or a news story you want us to bring to our next in-studio, send an email to connect at lifeoflaw.org. Be sure to include your contact information so we can follow up. I'd like to thank Life of the Law's team, Brittany Botorf, attorney with the Mayor Law Group and chair of Life of the Law's advisory board, Asagi Obasagi, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a member of Life of the Law's advisory board, and Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel for coming into the studio today. Tony Gannon will senior produce, and Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane will post-produce this episode. Our music was composed by Ian Koss. Katie McMurrin was our engineer. If you want to hear Life of the Law's 100-plus episodes, tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law, including notes from our reporters and our listeners. So take a minute to subscribe to our podcast and our newsletter. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law. They're going to do what they want to do. Their mind's already made up. That's, that's just the way I thought because of the fact with him being a police officer, you know. That's next on Life of the Law. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.